Shalom, everybody, and welcome back to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem on the land of Israel network. I'm at beautiful Pardes, the incredible Torah Institute in Talpiot, not the heart of Jerusalem, but the south of Jerusalem. And if I'm in Pardes, which is found at Pardes.org.il, I'm with Rabbi Mike Foyer. Rabbi Mike, shalom and welcome. Oh, it's so great to see you, Yishai. Spiritual Cafe here on the Yishai Fleischer Show, where we talk about the Torah portion and also a tad about... Um, Inyane de Yoma, things that are happening throughout the, the, the Jewish history as it's happening today. That's right, we're part of Jewish history. You know, Rabbi Mike, sometimes I, I do things like in Hebron or in Jerusalem, and I'm like, I'm doing something that's going to be in the annals, just like I read about other people's annals. Like, for example, where you live, I remember where you, when you lived, where you, where you live now, I remember being a young yeshiva student standing there, and I remember that spot being a totally empty piece of land. And in the annals of Jewish history, you're the man who's living in those apartments now where it was only empty for the last 2,000 years. I'm happy to fill your history with people. Yeah. Um, I, I have that same sensation when I, when I walk out on my porch and I look out that I see the edge of the wilderness. And we really live on the edge. We live on the edge of civilization in many sense we live in the edge of jerusalem and we live on the edge of a great battle right now that's happening so i definitely feel it in the air we are living indeed on the edge of a great battle a lot of people don't see that one of the great successes of the palestinian narrative has been to pin to, to, to shift the consciousness to such a degree that Israel is a big bad guy and the Palestinians are the small oppressed, that a famous uh, ability to change uh, David into Goliath and Goliath into David has been, has been mega successful for the anti-Israel cause. So much so that the jihad as a whole has actually picked up that model and now the great fear is that maybe Western civilization is oppressing Islam. Right, this 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 uh, phrase of Islamophobia, which I mean is real, and I'm not I'm not uh, encouraging people to go out there and, and beat up their Muslim neighbors just because they're Muslim, God forbid. But the idea that that's the fundamental problem, and not a religion and and a, a worldview that's teaching its followers to conquer and destroy, is is such a perverse inversion of what's happening, and it plays to the heart of the liberal sentiment and the desire to to be compassionate and a desire to be accepting uh, and a desire therefore not to see the th- types of threat that demand action so I, I see it as a, as a sort of a model that's been built upon and expanded and it's really is is the primary challenge we face today is how do we as a people wield force in the name of justice in a way that won't simply repeat all the mistakes of history that every time force comes into play justice takes a back seat uh, speaking of inversion, uh, last night I saw a picture of, uh, I forgot the name of the gate, uh, I'm having an ignorant moment here, is it Brandenburg Gate? Sure. Is that the one? Yeah. Where, where famously uh, Nazi swastikas hung from and were really the sign of, of Nazi Germany and, and instead uh, superimposed, uh, projected onto that gate was a big, very beautifully done flag of Israel. And uh, that's in Germany, if I didn't make that clear. And that's because of a horrific truck ramming attack that took place on Sunday here in Eretz Israel. Uh, not coincidentally, it was the 10th of Tevet. Uh, I don't think it was a coincidence at all. There's no coincidence. Right. Uh, and certainly not this horrible tragedy that, that, that hit us. And this truck ramming was, um, uh, was very familiar now to people throughout the world. The, the truck and the driver in the truck who can just u- use the truck as a machine to mow down people, 
This reminds me, by the way, of September 11th. Here's the thing. Here's a machine that's created in order to, to transport people and to, to be connect. productive. Right. To connect, yeah. And the truck, uh, I don't know what kind of truck it was, but it was you know, a truck for building or for taking out refuse or for just being productive. Productive. And instead it was used to be uh, destructive. destructive. And uh, in such a horrific fashion, um, this truck in the neighborhood of Armona Natsiv, adjacent to the Arab neighborhood of Jabal Mukabar, which is adjacent to my neighborhood, which is adjacent to uh, the, the old city of Jerusalem. This truck with a driver who came out of the town of the, vill- uh, the neighborhood of Jabal Mukabar <coughs> runs over, plows over a group of uh, Israeli soldiers. Uh, they flee, and that's another part of the story also, the fleeing, the shooting, that's become a big di- discussion here in Israel. In any case... Truck uh, uh, makes a Yui and mows down some more people again. Actually, until, I think he did it in reverse. Uh, I There's saw some it. confusion. Yeah, I saw it. I, it looked to me like a Yui, but whatever. It doesn't matter. In, in any case, uh, whatever it was, he, he kept going. Uh, and it, that, that's when some people understood there was no accident because it may have been perceived as an accident at first. And then some folks uh, started, including the tour guide and, and, and one of the soldiers, two of the soldiers started shooting, and they took out the terrorist, and mercifully, it was only four people. It could have been more. It could have been much worse. It could have been like those European numbers, like what happened in France, yeah, which nice, was like, yeah. we're talking Fif- about... 15, 20 people, I think it was. No, I think it was more like 70 people. It was like some huge number. Really? Oh, wow. Any case, the, it was it was because nobody has guns there, not like right. here, you know, so you can't stop this thing. It keeps going. It keeps trucking. Anyway, uh, so so in order to uh, to to show commiseration, uh, the the Germans on this Brandenburg Gate are, are superimposing the flag of Israel. And I thought to myself, one cynical side of me says, "Oh, they like to see weak Jews. They like to see broken Jews. They sure feel bad about when the Holocaust strikes." Uh, another side of mine, uh, another side of me says, "No, they're they actually starting to a little bit get it. They're starting to a little bit understand that wow, we're being struck with this." Israel's being struck with this. Wait a minute. This, there's like a light bulb. Maybe this is a jihad, and not and and not a, a self determination of Palestine here at all. I, one hopes that there is a gradual waking up because in the end of the day, the the great battle that I mentioned before, um, and you know, I'm a little bit hesitant to play into that, but nevertheless, I feel the pull of the forces that are happening in the world today. That great battle is between those that choose life and those that worship death. And there are many ways to choose life, and that's one of the powers of the liberal Western mentality is that it no longer needs to suppress, you know, difference of opinion and, and political system, et cetera. That's been a huge evolution for the West. Um, and yet in that, it has weakened its ability to actually identify evil. But the evil that gets behind the wheel of a truck and just decides, I mean, as I said, this was a, a relatively young man. I think he was 28. He was a father of four. Um, what, what causes someone like that to choose death? And I personally don't accept the um, political rhetoric behind it. I mean, with all the recognition I have of the very difficult situation that we're in vis-a-vis our cousins here, I don't buy that a human being, that that switch flips because of politics. There is a worship of death that lurks behind this whole discussion, and therefore we as a people who have made our mark on history by being those that choose life need to begin to move into the forefront. And that, to me, is the power of that image of the Israeli flag on the Brandenburg Gate, because Nazism was the ultimate death cult. It took an incredibly productive, alive people and managed to switch that, that, that chip within them and they began to worship death as passionately as they love life because the Germans are incredibly productive, life-giving people. You know? And 
that was the symbolism of it to me. So maybe you're right. Maybe that there's a realization that no matter what, how you perceive life, and you define its values, liberal, conservative, religious, secular, left, right, up, down, I don't really care. If you, if you choose life, then we need to band together because this death cult needs to be destroyed. Well, first thing, by the way, I'm reminded that uh, about, about a year or two ago, I saw a, um, uh, a, a presentation, presentation about some of the decorative arts that were found in the temple because some of them are still extant. Uh, you could see some of them in some of the underground passages that still exist underneath the Temple Mount where there are today mosques. And mm-hmm. amazingly, some of them are swastikas. Swastikas wasn't always a negative thing. It was like a geometric type sign. Yeah, sure. And, and there's, a, there's a kind of beauty to it. Uh, uh, but uh, be that as it may, we know what it stands for today. What, um, what troubles me so much is that the jihad is not something that exists <coughs> external to us like in Iran or you know, somewhere, or in Syria, or something like that. The jihad is in a place called Jabal Muqabr. Jabal Muqabr is the same place that also has uh, the Israeli health care, <coughs> um, what do we call the uh, clinics. National insurance. And right. Like, you drive through Jabal Muqabr, as I do, often, and there is a le'umit, <laughs> the height of, of humor, that there's a, a, it's called the National Health Clinic. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, and it's there, and, and, and these people have, there's no fence around them. They are residents, and this guy was actually a citizen of Israel, and, uh, and, and they're living this, this life in a, in a you know, what, what anywhere in the Middle East would be considered a, considered a super decent lifestyle. From socioeconomic standpoint, yeah. Socioeconomic and other, meaning to say, meaning to say, that they have everything that one could want in the Middle East in, in the sense that one has health, and ability to raise children and, and safety and schools and all the, the decent stuff of, of life, seemingly. Uh, but at the same time, within the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem, in this, in this neighborhood, grows this vehement hate against Israel. And the other side of that is we know that, and for some reason we're unable to do something about it. And it's not, it's not, it's not in my opinion, that's not the other side. This huhu hadavar, as we say in, in yeshivish, right? That... that as far as I can tell, as long as we allow it to be sensed and felt that we're not at home, that we are not in charge, that we do not insist on basic rule of law and human decency, then the sense that through a vicious um, abandonment of normalcy in life, we can be driven out will grow, right? That, how many times have we heard it? Is that, that statement by the radical Islam that because we love life, that's our weakness, and, and, and uh, it is time for us to wake up and figure out how to love life and wield force. Because right now, the, the, the difficulty of a liberal mentality, I mean that with a small L, just not, a, not like in a political sense, just a general, and, and we were just speaking before that both of us on some level think of ourselves as liberals, right? I don't know that people listening to us may categorize us as such, but in the sense of a desire for a rich plurality of human experience and the freedom of, of the individual to find expression and, and connection, and et cetera, et cetera, right? And no need to, to use force to impress my worldview on people. But the problem is, without a clarity of where the boundaries of justice lie and the rule of law, that will collapse like that. Right. And, and what's missing a lot of times in the liberal mindset is the uh, hate of evil. 
Yes. You got to hate evil. Like 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 part of part of being liberal and seeing the other side and seeing other people is like there's got to be a line where across that line you're like no 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 no. Not only do I not accept that, I actually hate that. I, I will destroy that. it. Right. And we can have a debate about whether the emotion of hate is necessary, but I think we agree it needs to be destroyed. I like the verse Ohave Hashem sin u ra. Right. Lovers of God hate evil. I like that phrase very much because it has in it this this complexity. It's like you have you have you're a lover per se. By 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 that's the category. You're a lover of God. You're a lover, mm-hmm. but you hate evil. Therefore, yes. the, you know. Yeah, and there's no contest. I mean, we could start splitting hairs about hating evil and uh, loving those who are wicked and uh, hating the sin and loving the sinner, etc. Uncle Jay um, said that. Yeah, I've heard that one, and it's no. There's real wisdom in it because, aside from the basic morality of it, I fear the power of hatred, because because hatred doesn't have boundaries. When, when you really allow it a, a place within your heart, it has an ability to seep into everything. And I think that's why liberalism has taken such a strong stance against hate. The reality is, is that it's growing in the world whether we like it or not, and it needs to be combated. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Let's get to the Torah portion. First thing you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show. Land of Israel Network, many great other shows. Rabbi Mike Foyer with me, Pardes, pardes.org.il is where we're at. Torah portion is the end of the book of Genesis. We are, we are going to finish off the book of Genesis. A lot of people are going to groan a sigh of pain because it's their favorite book. I wish more people would know the book of Genesis even well. I've started realizing that biblical illiteracy means that people don't even know the actors in the book of Genesis. Um, and uh, this is a very poignant end to the book. Uh, we've had the roller coaster of the brothers and Joseph and the sale. We're uh, almost totally past it, although it'll make a little blip in this week's Torah portion as well. The Torah portion is Vayechi. It's about chapter uh, 47. According to the Bishop of Canterbury, it's going to be chapter 47. Verse 28 is where we start uh, as traditional Jews. Parshat Vayechi. And, and, and Yechi means Jacob lived or, or he was enlivened. Here's the choose life. Here it is. And, and of course, when the Torah tells you uh, that somebody lived, it's also going to tell you about his death. It's going to tell you about, uh, just like Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, is also really about her burial. So to hear Vayechi, uh, uh, Jacob is going to live. And, and Jacob is going to be, uh, quote-unquote, dying in this week's Torah portion. Interestingly enough, the Torah never says that he actually died. And the rabbis say, the rabbis like to say, Jacob never died. Yaakov Avinu Lomet. Lomet. He, he never really died. It says that they buried him. T- talks a lot about his burial. He was mummified. Forget about it. He certainly is dead, right? But but no, he's not, he never died. Torah never says he died. Well, I mean, in in a certain sense, in a certain sense, it's because you and I are Yaakov Avinu, right? Right, because because Yaakov is that aspect. Remember, he has two names. He's Yaakov and he's Israel. Israel is his ideal toward which he strives. In his own lifetime, as we spoke about, he's the only person in the Torah whose name gets changed, which doesn't stick. So Yaakov is the everyman side, right? It's the ability of every Clark Jew. Kent. Right? The Clark Kent, right? It's the ability of every Jew, and really, I think, on some level, every human being, to strive to be Yaakov. I mean, there's a powerful um, way of reading the Torah that if you substitute your own name for Yaakov's, as you're reading the Torah, and especially as you get in later into the Navi, into the prophets, when, when God begins to speak of Yaakov as an idea, as, as opposed to speaking to him as a person, there can be a very intense experience of seeing what it's like. It's like, well, yeah, right, I'm actually the main character of this story. And that's what it means that Yaakov, you know, the story doesn't end here. If you think this is a story about something in the past, then you won't know how to live in the present, and you'll certainly ne- never get to the future of which we dream. <sighs> You said something there that, that really, uh, it just, it really strikes a, a, a very um, 
painful little spot in my soul these days because I've come to realize that one of the big problems is is if you don't read the Bible, you don't know who the protagonist is, you don't know who the, who the antagonist is, and you certainly do not see yourself in that story if you've never read the story. That's right. I, I'm, I, you know, I, I just like, I really have started realizing that one of the main changes between today and yesterday is that, for example, the Balfour Declaration was declared by people. Who is Balfour? He's a guy who has read the Bible, believes in the Bible, and sees Israel as the protagonist. In a world today, 100 years later, where nobody knows the Bible, including Israelis, yeah, including exactly. us, including them, including the whole story. So who, who the heck is the protagonist? And any, anybody can be like, hey, wait, I'm the protagonist. Well, and one of the powers of Muslim society is that they know their scripture. Strongly. They, they know the Quran. Yep. Okay, so Jacob is going to be, uh, he, remember, last week, last time we left off Jacob, he was leaving the land of Israel to go see his son. He's going to go down to Egypt, and, and, and he's going to have sweet years, in a sense. And here in these uh, last sweet years of his life, uh, uh, it says that, that Israel's days were coming to an end, and, and, he, and he brings Joseph down to, now, now understand, Jacob, he's the paterfamilias. But at the same time, Joseph, he's like the viceroy of Egypt. So here again, you've got these two kind of kings, and there's going to be a, a, an interplay between who has to give honor to whom. In this case, right in the beginning, Jacob says, he calls down his son to come to him, and he says, listen to this language, if I had found favor in your eyes. What kind of father says to his son, if I had found favor in your eyes, right? I mean, there's something there. Uh, he's obviously speaking to a very honorable and important person. He says, put your hand under my thigh, and we've, met, we've heard that before, and make an oath with me, uh, an oath that, that has chesed and emet, uh, a kindness and truth, which is a code signal in the Torah for a time of death. He says, don't bury me in Hackensack. I mean, <laughs> don't bury me in Egypt, okay? <laughs> and and I, I love this phrase, alna tikbereni bemitzrayim. Like, listen, one thing I want to ask you, don't bury me in Egypt. I just, I don't want that. Instead, I will lay with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt. Bury me in their burial place. And he says, Joseph says, no problem. I'll do what you said. And then, and then uh, Jacob, uh, again, we remember this from a different Jacob story. With, e- with Esau, he says, swear to me. I'm, I'm glad you, you agree with my general idea with the logical premise. Now, swear to me. And he indeed does swear to him. So th- this is this is the big theme. Like, don't don't bury me in Egypt. Like, I'm here and I'm having a nice time and I really like them all. But but don't bury me here. And this echoes down from this moment throughout Jewish history that we know. Even at times when it was completely impossible for a Jew to live in the land of Israel, people still strove to be buried here. And I think there's a real power in that because they understood that burial is a return to source. Right, and and it's a return to source, which is rooted in the idea that that um, our soul is not disconnected from our body, even though we believe the soul is eternal and that the body is ephemeral. Nevertheless, right, the visions of we have what, what's called tchiatametim of the resurrection of the dead. There's a reason that the sages fight a battle to speak about the resurrection of the body as well as the soul. And now it's not the time to get into theology and how to understand it. It's quite complex, but just on a, a simple narrative level, what it's telling you is that that what happens in this world is what really matters. And that that, that that real way in which we embody our values is through our actions. Right? And so Yaakov is saying, listen, I've had to leave Eretz Israel twice in my life. 
And it's been hard. He spent a huge amount of his life outside of Eretz Israel. And the time he spent in Eretz Israel was very challenging. But what he's saying is I want everyone to know that when I had to leave, it was because I had to. And so, therefore, I'm going to put it on you that even if I should die outside, I'm making you swear that my last act extend beyond my life and that you bring me back there because that's where I belong. That's where my essence finds its expression. And that's something that the Jews have done literally from this time to our very day. <clears throat> In fact, there's no LL plane today that doesn't have, no LL flight from America to Israel that doesn't have a body on it. That's what the LL people told me. I believe it. Every flight's got a body on it. And, and, and I know that my father was buried here and that gives me a lot of nachas. That does give me a lot of nachas. It gives my Powerful. mom nachas. Yep. And my mom is, is now living in Israel and, you know, and uh, she knows where her husband is buried and uh, that's our father of her children. Any case, uh, once he gets, once Yaakov gets that oath, he gets freed up. This, this seems like it was weighing heavy on him. Now he's ready to bless Yep. Now he's ready to bless. He's okay. We we got the deal done, and I and I could uh, relax, and and uh, and he calls Joseph in for a second time, and he, he's sick. He gets strengthened. He sits up on the bed. There's a lot of description about like him sitting up on the bed. He's sitting up, but he's old and fragile, seemingly. You know, so much so that the sages say that Yaakov was the first person who ever got sick before he died. He prayed to God to allow him to deteriorate instead of just dying suddenly because he realized there was so much left to be done. There's a, an, a, like a, a mercy in that process. A mercy for the others to... to and a mercy to for himself, body. right? Because the reality is, is a person won't complete everything they need to in their life. But there are, there are certain elements of life where the closure gives us a sense that we can now go. Yes, life is short, ladies and gentlemen. Time to time to uh, make sure that we're using it right as best we can. Amen. Um, j- now, before before he he doles out some blessings, uh, there's going to be another interchange between Yaakov and Yosef. It begins really by him saying, "Listen, God showed Himself to me at Luz in in the land of Canaan, and He blessed me." Uh, and and this is Luz, of course, is the other name of Beit El. I always wondered why is it that here, when we all know the name is Beitel, why does why does Yaakov use the name Luz? Mm-hmm. And it, I think it harkens right back to what we said before, which is bury me in the land of Israel. Luz is a place on the map. Yep, it's a place on the map. I don't mean Beitel, which is, could be here, Beitel synagogue here, or Bethel church here, or or Bethel school here. I mean to say Luz, that's on the map. We also call that Beitel, but it's this place here, the coordinates, and I mean in that specified place. Yeah. It's not mythological. It's not, it's not it's an not, idea. It's not even just aspirational, meaning ultimately it will be Beit El, but Yaakov at this point is only one man with his family. He is not yet the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel will rename it Beit El, but people know it as Luz in his day. Well, there at Luz, uh, I was promised that, that I'm going to inherit the land, that I'm going to have a, a big family, uh, and he says... And now, like now, I'm here with you, and, and your children that were born onto you, Ephraim and Menashe, they're going to be like Reuven and Shimon for me. Somehow, there's going to be a weird thing that's going to happen here where Jacob is going to instruct Joseph that he's, Joseph is no longer a tribe. He's not one of the 12 tribes. This is one of the little things that people can get confused about in Judaism. How many tribes are there? Well... Well, there's, there's 12 tribes, right? But there's kind of like 13 tribes if you really count them all up. It's that base, but, but here's the math. Joseph splits into two, Ephraim and Menashe. And Levi, Levi, kind of pops out. It's not like the rest of the tribes exactly. And that's the kind of new math that, that, that's going to happen. So, for example, 12 tribes are going to inherit the land of Israel. That's two tribes of Joseph minus 
a Levi who's a Levi who's not who's not really going to inherit any specified piece of land. So that's the kind of in reality there's like going to be 13 tribes because Joseph is going to split into two. And I can't resist just pointing out that um, that's true consistently with numbers in Jewish tradition. It's never about math. It's always about numbers which are a language to communicate concepts. Of course there are 12 tribes. Absolutely. When you try to count it up, okay, it's going to maybe work this way, maybe work that way. But then we have to ask the question, well, what is 12? But that's its own discussion. But it's it, generally true. 70 years of exile, 40, you know, 40 days on the mountain, 400 years of slavery, Etc. Etc. It always works out as a concept, and, and it's only a, a certain sort of uh, pedantic literalism that gets hung up on. Well, but how do you count that? You see how dangerous to be a yucky. You see yeah, that? It's, it's, it's dangerous because the math doesn't always work out. No, the, math, it, no, the concept always works. The math. <laughs> the, I, that's exactly. That's what I'm saying. The concept works. The math exactly. For example, you see what happens to the Jewish people when Moses didn't come back exactly when they expected. Exactly. The Why? Because they were yakking, right? They were too exacting with the time. When he didn't come back on time, they, they flipped out. Well, it's not just that, that they that made an assumption. That was a joke, folks, parenthetically, just joking around. Here. They, made, they around. made an assumption about what he meant when he said 40. Right. <laughs> All right, that's a little, uh, that's a little, another internal yeshiva's joke. Um, we'll get to it when we get to Sinai. <laughs> and we're coming to Sinai soon. Uh, he, he's also going to talk about uh, Rachel and he's basically, some people explain that, that he's kind of excusing, he's probably kind of explaining like, I want you to bury me at the tomb of the patriarchs. That's where I buried Leah, not your mom. Right, it's an awkward moment. Not your mom, you know, and that's where I want to be buried with everybody else. Your mom, here's the deal, you know. I know that you and I have got this incredible relationship. It's just me and you, Yosef. You know, I can't believe I've gotten to see you. And, uh, and, and I've, you know, I've been promised that, 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 that you're going to close my eyes when I die. And it's just it's the most amazing thing. But with regard to your mom, who I love so much and is considered the wife, well, she's not buried, w- not with me for eternity. And she's buried alone, alone in a little special place in Beit Lechem in Bethlehem on the road to Ephrath. On the way. It's so, it, I mean, it's so critical that in a sense... Uh, but just so you know, people ask me all the time, they're like, well, it just happened to me this week. But why is Rachel not here? People ask me like regularly. Sure. They just don't know. They're just like biblical illiteracy, but at least they know that there's a Rachel. They're like, why isn't Rachel here? You know, and, and that's something that, that people want an answer for. So I'll give you a thought on it is that just as Yaakov has two names, he has two wives. And in a sense, Rachel is Yaakov's wife and Leah is Yisrael's wife. And that's why, why Rachel is, is buried along the way, because Yaakov is that aspect of process, right? That's why right, the sages teach that she was buried there in order that when Am Yisrael went into exile, we would pass by and she would pray for us, as it says in the Navi, right? That's the whole process, right? And, 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 the, and the Yisrael and, and Leah sitting in Maratha Machpelah in the Cave of the Patriarchs is the end goal in a certain sense. That's interesting. I, I, what, I, what I tell people uh, when they ask me that, I say to them, look, Rachel refuses to be consoled. There's something about being at Hebron, which is consolation. It's couples. Yeah. It's family. It's embrace. It's all yeah. good. Rachel's like, I we're take, not there yet. I'm not taking that embrace. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to keep crying. I'm not Because be, we're still in exile. Right. And until all my children come home. And then in the prophet Jeremiah, uh, I think chapter 32, God has to come to, uh, to Rachel and be like, okay, you can stop crying. Yes, gonna bring, it's going to happen. Right. And, 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 and I'm going to bring all the children back home, but she refuses to be mollified. Let it be soon. Let it be now. Right. And also, and also when you go to the tomb of Rachel, that's why it's such a powerful prayer place and is well known to be a place where women go to. Act, you, you, it's like you cry there. That's what you do at the tomb of Rachel. And ironically now, there's so much more to cry about than there used to be as it's become a fortress. 
I mean, to have to fortify our places of prayer is, is such an indication that we're not there yet that I don't know what else could be more clear. Yes. That being the case, though, I must plug that just a kilometer south of Bethlehem today, a big Palestinian Authority city where we can't go and visit, where we can't see, go to Solomon's pools and, and other artifacts from biblical period, uh, where the tomb of Rachel is ensconced in a jail-like structure and all this kind of galut. At the same time, only one or two clicks south is a beautiful Jewish community of Efrat, with, I think, 20,000 people strong. It's that and, many? Wow. Yeah, it's a humongous, beautiful town, building all the time. I just want to say that, that you know, two steps forward, one step back. You know, yes, there's, there is a lot of bitterness and pain. This week started with a very, very, very bitter pill. It was just like, uh, you know, it was like one of these, like, whoa, that was a tough one. And it just, ah, it was a twisting of the knife in the back. But at the same time, Yes, the Jewish people are coming home, and that's the big picture. In any case, he, he, uh, we're talking about Joseph. He's getting a talk from dad. Yaakov is telling him, I'm sorry about that, but this is why it happened. You know, Rachel, she died on the way, and he probably passes on to him the, the mysticism and, and the depth. And here we go. Let's, tur- let's switch gears. Let's put it into blessing gear. Whoa, there's going to be crazy blessings coming down the pipes here, okay? There's going to be crazy blessings. First thing, there's going to be like these like classic blessing memes, okay? Uh, he blesses Joseph, and he says, the God that I walked before and my fathers walked before, uh, Abraham and, and Isaac, the God who, who, who is my shepherd uh, to me from the day I was born until today. And then the famous phrase, translated, translated, he says, he says, may the angel who redeems me from all evil bless the lads. May my name be declared upon them and the names of my forefathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they proliferate abundantly like fish within the land. This became a very popular song. That song is like, what do we call it? That's like, uh, you know, it's like bagels and locks. That's like, it's like <laughs> Judaism DNA, that song. That's part of it. Everybody says it. Ashkenazim, Sephardim, that's the, that, that's the way that we pass down the transition of blessings from our forefathers till today. And the sense that what it means to be part of the children of Yaakov is that we're being watched over, right? That there is a malach agoeloti, right? That there's God's messenger in the world who's here to protect us. And uh, sometimes that's easier, sometimes it's harder to believe. But this is also part of what we say as we're laying down to go to sleep. Um, and it's what's called Kriyat Shmala that when we make that declaration of the unity of God um, right before we leave the world for that little bit of, uh, of uh, darkness that is sleep, right? We just declare, no, I know you're holding me, God, and, and, and I'll be back. Uh, and I, I, like, I tell people a lot of times when we're at Maratha Machpelah, I ask people, what is the service that happens here? What, what, what do we, what's the action thing that happens? Everybody knows at the Western Wall, you put in a note, you talk to God. Well, what do you do here? I mean, if you really want to pray, go to, go to the Western go to Wall. Go to Jerusalem. Go look at the Temple Mount. You know, that's where it's supposed to be. That's where it will be. What do you do there? In Hebron, you pass it, you pass the blessings on from the fathers to the children. I always tell people, the real service of Hashem in Hebron is a life cycle event. If mm. you want to really do something there, like you want to serve God properly there, sure. have a wedding, have a brit milah, uh, have a bar or bat mitzvah, or the, one of the easiest, 
one of the seven Sheva Brachot, make one of the Sheva Brachot there in Hebron. Come to mom and grandpa and grandpa. They're not coming to you. Come to them and, 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 and do the Simcha with them. Uh, f- f- but we, d- we can't stop there because he's going to also bless uh, Ephraim and, and Menasheh. And he's going to actually tell you, uh, very similar to, um, to um, um, when we're told later that the way to, for, the, for the priests to bless People of Israel is in this formulaic phrase, may God bless you and, 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 and protect you. Here too, he's going to say, Jacob's going to say, he says, he says th- th- basically, so he blessed them that they saying, by, by you shall Israel bless, saying, meaning to say from, from here on, this is how I want Jewish people to bless their Jewish children by saying, may God make you like Ephraim and like Menashe. And indeed, that is what happens to this very day. So he, he gives Every us a Friday formula. night, right. And, uh, and somewhere along the line, another was added. Uh, I think the first liberal Jew added uh, the, 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 for, for the girls, Yisim Chayelokim, Kesarif Karachavaleah. I don't know where that comes from. Somewhere I, along the line. You know, I've, I've heard some interesting discussion about it that, that really... Um, the the bracha that Lavan and and his mother give to Rivka might actually be a more appropriate blessing for for girls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, that's nice. That's a, that's a, I like um, that. Ooh, but, I like that. But nevertheless, we we do what we do because that's what we do. Because <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> Tradition. Uh-huh. <laughs> you start dancing. I'm out of here. Okay, so that's that's the formulaic way, and also there's the famous switcheroo. Tell me a little bit about the switcheroo. Ephraim and Menashe, here can here they come, and the Torah is like he releases them. Joseph releases them from his knees. He sets them forward to Jacob, and Jacob's like, yeah, the physical drama here is yeah, quite intense. He's like switcheroo. He's, yeah, he's, he, he, he crosses ex- his hands. Crosses his hands. Joseph is like, no, father, that's he, not the right way. Not just that, he tries to reach, lift his hands, and he put assaults him. Back. him. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, first of all, remember, as we've spoken about before, it's consistent in the entire Torah that the firstborn does not inherit. And here is yet another example of that, that Ephraim receives the right hand, so to speak, which is the hand of the firstborn. And, and he, however, is the younger brother. Um, I, I think there's a lot of power in that in many respects. One of them is that when, when Rashi brings the words of our sages of, of why it is that Yaakov did this, it's because he sees in the offspring of Ephraim, Yehoshua bin Nun, right? Mm. The great teacher and, and, uh, and redeemer. general he's a, he's a, and redeemer right. who, who leads the conquest of Eretz Israel. And Menashe also has Gidon in his future. It's not like he's small potatoes. But in that, we see that, um, you know, the, the, the challenge of what we call primogenitor, right? The idea that the firstborn is the one that inherits is that it has really nothing to do with them. It's, it's luck, it's, it's happenstance. So you happen to have been born first. But because we're not really a people, despite our love of our story and our dedication to our tradition, we're not about the past. We're about the future. So Yaakov looks and says, listen, I'll tell you what, I see what's coming down the line from Ephraim, and he's actually the greater one. Maybe not him in and of himself, because we don't know if he's evaluating the two but he says, but, but, but his great-great-grandson is going to lead the, the uh, conquest of Eretz Israel, and that is his greatness in the future. And therefore, it doesn't have to do with what he came from. It has to do with where he's going to. Speaking of that conquest and Joshua, Joshua has a specific role for Joseph, for his great-grandfather. Absolutely. And that is to bring his bones 
to the land of Israel and to bury them in Shechem. Shechem, the city, is going to be promised to Joseph yes. here in this week's Torah portion. The bones of Joseph will play a critical role in this transition between a family unit and a nation in its land. Right? They, they appear here, I mean, here as a promise, meaning when, when Yaakov says, I've given you Shemechad, right? I'll give you one extra. It's not clear what the word Shechem means in this verse. Either a portion or the actual a portion town. or it can be the actual city, and, and uh, it's, it's a very rich exploration to be made there. Um, and then, of course, what's the last thing Moshe does before he leaves Egypt, he's going to bring up the bones he's of Joseph. He's got to go get the bones of Joseph. Everybody else is packing up and 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 you know cleaning up from the Pesach meal and and rolling their dough into their claws. Moses saying, "Oh, I got to go get those bones." And then, of course, the so to speak, final act of settling for Yehoshua ben Nun when he says, "Okay, I'm done now. I'm here," is the burial of the bones of Joseph. That stuff talks to me so much. I don't know why, but that specific, that idea that, jo- that Joseph's bones were, were taken and, and they carried him and then they brought him to Shechem and there they are. You know, I, I could see a lot of people being like, you're talking about a bunch of bones, yep. <laughs> you know? I could see why people like don't think so much, but to me, like keeps me up. Like I think to myself, the, the, you know, the tomb of Rachel, the bones of Joseph, uh, the, the tomb of the patriarchs. Like that's in, this week's Torah portion is strong in these themes. You yes, know? very much so. I also have a theory, by the way, is that, is that um, you know, is a question in the mind of um, the biblical critical world. And like, how do you reconcile the nature of the book of Breshit and its stories with the rest of the Torah? I mean, when you get into Shemot, it's clear it's Moshe, it's law, and there are challenges there too. But the, the stories of Breshit, what God dictated history to Moshe, I think that God played an editorial role, but the stories here were written down by Yosef. And that that's what was together with his bones. And aside from the promise that Yosef, that the, that the people had sworn to bring Yosef's bones, I'm not, I'm not arguing with your point. I'm, I'm trying to enhance it. Is what's tied up with that was, was the bringing forward of the actual book of Breshit, to take Breshit out of Egypt and back into the land. Because ultimately, as a story, it only really matters because the children live it in their physical existence. Right? These are not... Um, mythic tales meant to serve as a philosophical perspective on life. It's a story meant to be lived by real people in a real place. And that's where those two come together. The bones of Yosef tell us that, that the story is important, but life is what matters. And therefore, if you have a life that lives out the story, ah, that's the dream. Right? And so, and so the, the story is bound up with the physical remnant of Yosef himself because he is the connection between that family of 70 souls that were down there in Egypt and the people who ultimately will become a conceptual people. I mean, imagine you can convert and you're just as Jewish as, as the next Jew, right? Um, but nevertheless, you're, you're, you, it's because you're part of that story. Um, that is very deep thoughts. And I have, to, I have to process it myself about what you said about Joseph being the carrier of the book of Genesis. That's very interesting to me. And, and I will not comment because I, I actually just need to think that through. I never thought about that. Um, Jacob is going to now, uh, and we don't have a lot of time left. We have about 10 minutes left on uh, t- today's show altogether. We've got to wrap it all up, and including the book of Genesis. Uh, t- let's do it very quickly here that uh, Jacob's going to call all his sons together, uh, and he's going to try to tell them what's going to be at the end of days, and somehow he's blocked. You're not going to reveal the messianic process, even though you may see it right now. Uh, he's not going to be allowed to really say it all and everything, just like at the end of the book of, of, of Deuteronomy. When, jo- when Moses is doing the blessings, and usually when we read that on, 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 um, 
on Simcha's Torah when we're a little bit drunk anyway. It's like, I don't know what <laughs> this thing is saying. My head's always spinning, and I'm like, these things like Mel You and I have a very like, different Simcha's Torah experience. I'm just like, what is this? What is <laughs> it always ends in a total fog. Ta-da! <laughs> it's the same thing here. It's like, what? You know, there's a lot of really uh, incredible uh, things that are going to be told. Um, Judah is going to be kind of crowned king. He's the, the, the judgment maker. Shimon and Levi are going to be a little bit cussed out and, and kind of separated out for their, for their violence. Uh, Reuven is going to be told that he's a little too, uh, what's the word? Uh, hasty. Hasty, a little too hasty in his judgment. And one of my favorites is that, is that there's an allusion here to Samson. There's an allusion to Samson. Uh, and, and when it says that Dan will avenge his people, the tribes of Israel will be united as one. Dan will be a serpent on the highway, a viper by the path, bites a horse's heels, so its rider falls backwards. So you have this like big rider, big horse, and this like little snake, and it hits the nips the heel of a horse, and the horse throws the everything. Like it just reminds me very much of the Jew. The Jew has an element of like being this like thing in in, in history, and it somehow throws these big superior forces off. At that moment, suddenly something that has been missing for a long time comes back, and that's the tetragrammaton, God's name. Uh, uh, it'll, it'll come out of, of, of uh, Jacob's lips. Lishuotecha kiviti Hashem, for your salvation that I yearn, O God. Maybe, according to Rashi, when he sees the story of Samson, but in any case, a word that has been so so prevalently missing throughout this whole period was replaced by Elohim, the God of nature, uh, the, the God of... Um, the world God. The, the world, right, has been... And, and wait, where's, where's, the, where's the tetragrammaton? Where is it? And here it just, boom, flies out of his mouth. Each of these blessings really deserves an analysis. But um, as a whole, I actually want to challenge, even though what you said that, that is the traditional way the rabbis explain that Yaakov wanted to reveal the end of days and then suddenly... He the the presence of God left him. He was unable, but to a certain degree, actually, he does reveal the end of days here, and I think that that this is the way I've been taught to understand these blessings. Because what he realizes is that the end of the days is not a fixed property, right? There's not we're not playing out. You know, that sometimes you start to sound like Captain Kirk. You ever do that? You ever? No, I didn't that? know that. He's like he's like he's like. History's not written. You know? <laughs> Does he say that? <laughs> Things I like mean, that. I, I, it's what makes our pain is what makes us human. Yes. Well, then I. I. By the way, I value that comparison because what, what he's what he's saying is that is we're not little marionettes playing out some plan that God has already pre-written, and so therefore by revealing to the brothers what is uh, their essence, because the power of blessing that Yaakov uses here is the real power. Have you ever gone to someone for a bracha? For blessing, sure, sure. right? You ever wonder, like, what is that? How do, how do I? Why do I believe that, yes. that that other people have an ability to give blessing? And furthermore, the Gemara goes as far as says, "Al face right? Don't sort of disparage the blessing of just the guy on the street. You never know, because the real power of bracha is that you have things inside yourself that you can't see, but that those around you can. And when they bless you, what they're doing is they're calling into relief that aspect of yourself that you need most. Right, and so what Yaakov is doing is he's just pointing out to the brothers who they are. Sometimes it hurts, like you said. There's a bit of, a, you know, a, a slap in the, in the face a couple of times here. But nevertheless, what he's doing is he's pointing out to them who they really are, and in that he's revealing to them what will be, right? Because what will be is not a fixed quantity, right? That what will be is who they are, and so therefore he actually shifts his whole perspective on what revealing the end of days could be, and in that maybe it kind of takes us to the real question we have here: is how does the book of Brayshit? come to a conclusion right we started with this exploration you said you want jacob is going to die yes uh, he's going to be seemingly mummified of some kind or, or by, yep. by the egyptian mummification he's going to get 
a, a large, uh, uh, what do we call it, a train, a, a procession. A, a barrel procession, procession, sure. Goes to uh, uh, the Transjordan and then to the land of Israel and to the Marat Machpelah. There's a story within that, of course, as well. We'll talk about that in the next segment. But finally, they're going to bury him. The sons are going to bury him. And the book of, of Genesis is going to end when Joseph is going to almost verbatim, almost verbatim, or you could see it verse to verse, totally analogous, make his progeny swear, the children of Israel, that they will bury him in the land of Israel when the Redeemer shall come. And he's going to have a code word. You think that, that Google invented passwords or, or Yahoo? No. He says, pakod ifkod. You know, it's going to be like username B'nai Israel. Password, Pakod, you've code. That would be a nice little uh, meme, right? Yeah. Uh, that's what he says. And then finally, Joseph dies, and he gets put in a uh, Aron, what's that called? A, a coffin. A coffin in Egypt. That's right. Bum, bum, bum. And we, and we end in this sense of expectation. Because as we spoke about last week, Joseph has kind of created the context for both exile, but also for the transformation of this family into a people, right? And um, that is the role he plays. He is that bridge between the family of Israel and the idea of Israel, right? And, and, and Yaakov has brought the period of the forefathers to an end with the momentum of blessing, because that's really what, what the, the forefathers offer us. There's always more. If you can connect to these spiritual essence, right, this this sort of like source code, then 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 the result is blessing, which is blessing is tosefet. It's it's more. It's a bringing out of more. But in order to get that, you also have to connect it to where you are and who you are to the reality of the world. And that's that's Yosef. Yosef is that point of connection, right? And so therefore, basically, the book of Breshi, the book of Genesis, ends even though it seems like it ends in death. And with closure, what it really does is it ends with an outstretched hand. It's an outstretched hand toward the reader saying, okay, now here's a story. I'm giving it to you. But in your taking it from me, you don't take something which is an abstraction that you can detect. Because you know when I take something from your hand, you know what else I do? I make contact with you. And it's that contact with this, which is just as important as the content. And that's kind of what I meant about the relationship between Joseph's Bones and the book of Breshit, is that, is that the content without the contact is just an abstraction which will never really be realized in the world. The contact without the content, that's the biblical illiteracy you spoke about, the tragedy of, of people who really live the daily life of Am Yisrael today in our land, but don't actually know what it's about. Speaking of biblical illiteracy, there was also another group of people who were a little bit illiterate, in a, in a sense, and that's the brothers of Joseph. Yes. After the death of Jacob, they come to him and they're like, and they say, all right, now now he's going to avenge it. Now he's gonna, the kibosh is coming down. He's, he's going to avenge what we did to him. And they're like, listen, uh, your dad uh, said to us, to, he made us tell you that you shouldn't hurt us. And he cries, and he cries because they're not there yet. Right. They have not realized the whole story. He's made peace with the whole story. Uh, of what happened in, in, in a sense that he understands that really God was behind it. Uh, but they don't, it's almost like they don't know his heart. And he cries when, when like this, this is a guy, Joseph, who obviously sees a gigantic picture. Yes. And, and they're still in their small place. And maybe also one could make an economic argument that he created learned helplessness by, you know, uh, uh, feeding them for those years and, I don't know, weaken them, whatever it is. But in any case, some place in them is like they're not, now that it's like just me and you, 
just us and there's no dad to referee between us, like they got scared of him. Yes. They got scared of him. And he's like, and he cries. He's like, that's not what this is about at all. And, and there's a powerful moment when what he tries to communicate to them is once again that same message that made him who he is, which is it, this is about God. Right? And this is a story about God. And in that if we as a family and then ultimately as a people live it as a story about God, it's not that we'll never do anything wrong. It's just that when we when we act out of love, that even the things that we do wrong ultimately will bear fruit. Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw three generations through Ephraim. Even the sons of Mechir, son of Menashe, were raised on Joseph's knees. This is the second time that Joseph's knees were mentioned. Knees, when you think about it, very bony, like very, uh, uh, it's not the word lap, okay? It's the word knees. Knees, you're like, he, Joseph had a knee, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a knee, just like Beitel was loose. Joseph had a knee, you know, that thing that creaks, you know, that thing? Like, he had a knee, and they were raised on his knees, on his bones. And also, Birkei Yosef, the knees of Yosef, really um, give a wholeness to this parsha because the, the, the Berech is also the source of bracha, once again. Right? The, the knee and bracha, what's the relationship between knee and blessing? It's very simple. In order to receive a blessing, you have to make space to receive it. And the bowing and the bending of the knee and the making of oneself small is actually what allows greatness to enter one's life. And, and, and it's Joshua who will write the Aleinu prayer. And that Aleinu prayer says, Kol berech t'lecha tichra. Tichra. Every, every knee will bow to you. It will bend to you, the bending right. of the knee. And with that, uh, the book of uh, Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely remember you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph adjured the children of Israel, saying, when God will indeed remember you, then you must bring my bones up out of here. Joseph died at the age of 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Till the next chapter of the Jewish people's... um, the Jewish people are now going to be left in Egypt and they're going to maybe succumb partially to Egyptian culture, to the Egyptian uh, crucible that they're going to be formed inside of. They're going to be bondage. We'll talk about that next time in the book of Shemot and also in a period here in Israel especially uh, uh, um, uh, celebrated or, 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 or uh, remembered, which is Shovavim, a, a, a period of uh, cleansing, especially from sexual sins. That's coming right up. Uh, starting next week. Rabbi Mike Foyer, we're out of time for today. I want to thank you so much. I want to bless you with the blessings of the, remember the blessings of the head yot. Here it goes. Uh, I want to bless you uh, uh, in the name of the forefathers and mothers that you continue to have success in learning Torah. Amen. And uh, all of our listeners out there, wherever you are, uh, fall in love with this Torah. It is yours. It is ours. It is an incredible story. Biblical literacy will lead to blessings, consciousness of blessings, consciousness of God, consciousness of Israel, consciousness of the land of Israel, and consciousness to what we could all in this world can really become. So I want to thank you very much. Write me an email, yeshai at thelandofisrael.com. Stay tuned. We're going to have a little bit more radio here. Rabbi Michael, I want to thank you again. Wish you a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, you say. God bless you folks wherever you are. Stay tuned, stay strong, and stay connected. The best place to stay in Jerusalem is at Windows of Jerusalem Vacation Apartments. Check out their website, www.windowsofjerusalem.com. They've got beautiful one, two, three, four bedroom apartments in the best location in the city center with the most beautiful, breathtaking views. And I mean breathtaking. I've stayed there a number of times myself. And I'm telling you, there are few places anywhere in the city 
where you can take it all in to this degree. The view, the location, the great apartments, plus the wonderful staff will truly make you feel at home in Jerusalem. Book your stay now at windowsofjerusalem.com. All right, friends, we're here at the Menachem Begin Center. This is uh, the Heritage Center, which has so many educational activities, brings tons of soldiers, has uh, conferences, and is a place that is well-known to uh, the landmarks of Jerusalem. When you're driving through, you see it's overlooking the old city walls. And when I come into this building, I actually just gave a talk to the government fellows that they have here. Very impressive young group of people who are everywhere in the, in the Israeli government this year, from all over the world, from Ukraine, from South America and certainly from the United States and Europe. Uh, and they are at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They're at the Finance Ministry. They're at the Economics Ministry and an Alternative Fuel for the Prime Minister. All kinds of fascinating places that they're at. And when I came in to give my talk afterwards, how could I not stop by and visit uh, one of the stalwart activists uh, who today is, of course, already a senior you know, actor in, in Zionism. And his name is, of course, Israel Meidad, also known... Uh, lovingly as Winky. He's the Director of Educational and Informational Resources here at the Begin Heritage Center, uh, but also an independent journalist uh, and just a, a person who's a commentator uh, for so much of how nationalist thinking was and should continue to be. Israel Meidat, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. You have a great radio voice. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, let's talk about Jerusalem. You just put up on your screen... Uh, a picture of yourself many moons ago. Your hair was a lot less gray then, although the picture is black and white. Uh, you could tell that your hair was black and dark, and you're getting pulled off by what looks like, you know, uh, Israeli police from yesteryear, from one of those old Israeli movies, and they're pulling you off. It's so obvious there's like an action shot there, and and they're pulling you off of something. I didn't know if it was Sebastia or, or someplace out there trying to settle the land of Israel. It turns out to be, it wasn't in the periphery, it's in the heart of the heart, the Temple Mount itself. You told me that you were praying the 18 benedictions, the Shimon Esra prayer, and you're getting pulled off by the police. What's that about? What year is that? Uh, my wife and I made Aliyah in 1970, and immediately I became active in the Temple Mount movement. Wow. And in those days, it was quite more difficult to, to even get groups up there at one period of time, in fact, you couldn't have more than seven people because they were afraid that you might have a minion, and as soon as Jews get a minion, they begin to pray. Uh, so we, one of the uh, elements was, of course, trying to get up ten people and pray, and the picture that you're seeing, we managed to get ten people together, and I was in the middle. In fact, uh, I'm very sort of struggling because I was right in the middle of repeating the benedictions, and I didn't want to be moved, but uh, they eventually just, took just us to down. Just to make it clear for everybody, you're not supposed to break in the middle of this prayer. It's like a silent benediction, but it's also you're kind of locked in and uh, into like a certain stance, and you're not supposed to really be broken through that. It's like a it starts at the beginning of the end, and it's it's a sacred thing amongst the Jewish people that you're not supposed to stop in the middle of this thing. I'm having a private audience with God, so I don't want anybody to disturb me, right? Uh, and that was one of the uh, activities that we were doing. At that time, uh, now of course the situation is greatly uh, uh, different. We have uh, uh, many more Jews being able to go up there, and a lot more sympathy among the public. 
I'm talking about a period, uh, that picture was probably taken in the late 1970s. How did you get up there? Uh, well, we walked up. Uh, sometimes we had to disguise ourselves as tourists. Sometimes we went up singly and then sort of moved closer together right. when people, because the police then didn't, didn't follow you as they do today. Today you can't go up without a police escort. Right. At that time you could go up singly or two or threes and no one would pay attention especially if you're wearing a kova temple or stuff like that rather than uh, a, like a, a like a like a common israeli hat at the time right right and uh, so that was uh, probably one of the points at one time actually we handcuffed ourselves to the railing of the steps that go down to el aqsa the ancient el aqsa which is the original second temple buildings underneath uh, the Al-Aqsa Solomon Stables have. and all that. Solomon Stables right. area and stuff like that, right. Well, you know, political theater of that kind, chaining yourself to something, that was great stuff in the, in the 60s and 70s. It helped Russian Jewry get out. Uh, there were masters of political theater. Um, you rarely see that kind of stuff today. Nobody's chaining themselves to anything today. It just doesn't happen. And I, I, I always kind of like lamented the fact that we don't, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. You know, I heard about... Uh, I have a lot of friends who were involved in the Kahana movement. They talked a, lo a lot about, for example, when the Soviet swim team came to meet the American swim team, they all jumped into the pool with red dye and the whole thing became red and all these kind of actions that really, and of course it made a splash, literally and figuratively. Uh, that doesn't really happen so much anymore and yet the issues are just as burning, just as hot. What can you tell me about that? Well, my only comment would be that uh, I myself have tried to uh, set up a training course for direct action, direct nonviolent action. It's very difficult, especially in the Israel, because those actions that you talked about meant that you personally had to take upon yourself the possibility of either getting hit by a policeman or going through the process of arrest and, and some sort of judicial appearance, something like that. Today, everybody runs away from getting arrest, or they fight back at the police. Right. And I don't accept that. I don't, I don't accept it at other places, whether it's Gush Emunim or, or other things like that. You put your body on the line, and you take the punishment and meet it out, because you hope that that punishment will make their case, the government's case or the police case, much more worse. It's a different situation. Right. Uh, I mean, just the way you spoke about that harkens back to, I, I almost heard Lahavdil, I heard... Gandhi, you know, and I don't mean our Israeli Gandhi. I mean uh, the, you know, the Indian Gandhi. The Mahatma. Mahatma Gandhi. And just, uh, th there, was, there was a whole, as we say in Judaism, a whole Torah to that kind of civil disobedience. And it, and it finally straddled. It straddled very uh, uh, specifically and, and purposefully that line between democracy and protest that didn't cross that line. And that's, I think, what you're talking about. Still, though, let's get back to the issues now. We're talking about a time right now which is not any less hot than, than those uh, heady days, of course, on the Temple Mount issues, but Jerusalem in general. And I, I identified a most incredible thing. On one general hill area, there are three major issues happening at the same time. The area of Armon and Atsiv has three things happening at the same time. One is that there is an Arab neighborhood there that has become jihadist, and the latest jihad attack came out of Jabal Mukaber. And uh, uh, four Israelis were, were, were mowed down by this terrorist truck, another terrorist coming out of that uh, neighborhood. That's right there. The other issue is that the UN has their biggest presence uh, in the Middle East here on, this, um, on the side of this mountain. And they're calling us illegitimate for living in that very same mountain. And thirdly, there is an American consulate there, which there are rumors 
could easily become the American embassy, if so chosen. That's all happening in one little kind of uh, few, few acres area. I want to talk a little bit about, about Jerusalem with you. Tell me about the status of Jerusalem from somebody you worked with from the Begin period uh, and, um, and, and this issue of, of President, incoming President Trump maybe moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Well, first of all, let's remind ourselves that Menachem Begin at Camp David One refused to even deliberate about Jerusalem. He wouldn't even have it on the table. He said, if anything, it will be uh, done in the final status negotiations. I am not going to uh, even discuss it. In the end, it was attached to like the, the appendix, the letters afterwards, but it wasn't within uh, uh, the body of the literature that was going on at the time that came out of Camp David Number 1. And from there, if you allow me to, I want to jump to uh, John Kerry. John Kerry's lecture after the Security Council included something which I think I caught and not too many people were aware of. He spoke about the holiness or the importance of the Temple Mount for the three monotheistic religions. Yeshai, I suggest to you and to our listening audience that not only are we talking about a division, a possible division of Jerusalem from the United Nations, not only are we talking about uh, removing the Kotel from the Temple Mount, as if they're two, they don't belong one to another. The Kotel belongs to Jews, and the Temple Mount belongs to the Muslims. But an internationalization regime only of the Holy Basin. Ehud Omid brought it up in 2010. If you look carefully at the wording of how Kerry expressed himself in those six points, I think it was point number four, you'll see there's a what we call in Hebrew garin, a kernel uh, of something there that could be very dangerous. Relating to the whole situation, uh, I think it's, it's just silly for people to say that Jews have no relation to the Temple Mount whatsoever. Not only that, they're also harming millions and millions of Christians. Whatever we personally think about Christians, let us remember that Jesus came to the Temple. He didn't come to a mosque on, the, on Mount Maria. He came to a temple. This is ripping out of two major religions the core of what they are. Okay. And now there is a new administration in the United States. And there's, you t- you, you're talking about the religious core, the historical core, but there's another core, which is the, which is the, <coughs> the narrative core. When the United States of America doesn't have its embassy in Jerusalem, that's our best friend in the world. It undermines our Israeli narrative that Jerusalem is our capital. Now, uh, not now, I think in 1995, the United States of America, the people of America, the Congress of America, and signed by the President of the America, uh, showed their will that they want to move the embassy to Jerusalem. A lot of people are talking about if Trump is going to move the embassy. I keep on saying to people, Trump isn't going to move the embassy. It's the people of America. It's the law. It's the President that signed that law into action. The only thing that, that Trump has to do is to not be obstructionist, what we call in Judaism, right? And it, do you think that that's coming up? Do you think that's going to be, that's really going to happen? That's one of the big issues on, on the table. And, and do you th- or do you think that he's going to continue to be a president who's an obstructionist to the will of the people? My short answer is that he will make a change. And I may, I, if he's listening to me, Yishai, right now, of course he is. I can suggest two things before he gets into trouble. 
The first thing is that the residence of the ambassador will be in Jerusalem, no matter where the embassy is, as a first step. The second thing is to uh, take the, the official residence. The official residence, right? Okay, he doesn't. Even if he doesn't, if he continues to work for the next six months in Tel Aviv, his residence is in Jerusalem. Right. There's no reason for him not to live here. Right. He can even live in a hotel suite, despite the fact that he has an apartment here. The second thing is that the consulate will be moved to Ramallah. The Jerusalem consulate of the United States of America does not deal except for consular issues such as passports, visas, social security, death certificates, not a lower lane as we say that we don't have to deal with, okay? It, for arts, for culture, exhibits, music, anything, student grants, it's all done only for Arabs living in Jerusalem and the territories. My daughter cannot make an application for a student grant from the Jerusalem consulate because she's not a Palestinian and she doesn't live in Ramallah, Shrem, and Jenin. She turns to Tel Aviv. She has to go to Tel Aviv. Right. So if they're really interested in serving only the Arabs, let them live and move in Ramallah. Okay? And then the consulate becomes secondary. You want to work with the Palestinians, quote-unquote, the Palestinian Authority, without quotes, in Ramallah, not by us. Okay? So after those two things go over, then we can talk about setting up officially the Jerusalem Embassy. I'm not going to rush things. We've been since 1995, even with a law without it. But these two things can ease, I'm talking politically, Yishai, not ideologically right, right now, right, right. politically, pragmatically, these are the two steps I would suggest he takes. Just give me a little bit of historical background. Did America have their embassy in Jerusalem and did it leave or did it never have it in Jerusalem? It never had it because, for some strange reason, United mm-hmm. States State Department decided that the last diplomatic word was that 1947 partition resolution that included an international regime of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And they say, until you sign a peace treaty, Whenever, tomorrow, or the next 1,500 years, we're not going to move that. Now, if you look at that international regime, it was only supposed to take place for 10 years. Right. And afterwards, there was going to be a plebiscite. Okay, so in other words, the United States administration, the United States Congress, the United States State Department is moving on an issue of almost 70 years that was supposed to disappear after 10 years. Wow, that's interesting. I did not know that. Um... Also, they don't recognize West Jerusalem as part of Jer- a part of Israel either. Meaning to say, no. my daughter is born in West Jerusalem. She will not have a state. She's stateless. Right. She's stateless. I always try to explain. Meaning to say, it says in the passport, it says just Jerusalem. I just tell people Jerusalem is just above, you know, state borders and lines. It's so spiritual. It's so high. It's on cloud nine over there. You That's know? a very good move. I have to tell people she wasn't born in Jerusalem, New Zealand. Right. Right. I understand that. <laughs> and and tell me a little bit about the. Uh, assertion of sovereignty over Eastern Jerusalem. How did that happen? When did that happen? David Ben-Gurion, in December 9th, 1949, established Jerusalem as the seat of government. It set off the uh, American State Department and other people bonkers. Since then, the United States has been fighting against Jerusalem, recognized as any sort of capital. And so surely, West and East, afterwards, the same thing. The war came in 67. We applied a technical uh, paragraph that said that Israel could extend its sovereignty to portions of the original mandate, which, of course, not only included Judea and Samaria, but also Jerusalem. 
And wait, and then in the eighties, wasn't it? Uh, we had us. We had two laws in, in nineteen eighty-one, if I'm not mistaken. I think nineteen eighty, we had the Jerusalem law by Gula Cohen, a member of Knesset who, with whom I worked, which reestablished that uh, as as a basic law rather than just a uh, technicality. A technicality. So, and that is the law. That is the law. That is the law. The state of the, Israel recognizes Jerusalem and East Jerusalem as its capital. All government institutions must be in Jerusalem, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And it's normalized. There's no, there's no question mark in the in the state of Israel about its relationship to Jerusalem. Except you speak to extreme left wingers, but uh, <laughs> they don't set government policy. All right. Well, there is definitely going to be a sea, sea change. Yet at the same time, coming up soon, there's some change at least as you delineated. Uh, the UN calling us out, telling us that we don't belong. I think. If I would be doing chaining myself today, I wouldn't just necessarily be chaining myself on the Temple Mount. I'd be chaining myself to the UN, and I'd be saying, you want us out of Jerusalem? I want you out of Jerusalem. What's your legitimacy here? That, you shy? Yeah. I'd suggest to Mr. Trump to get the UN out of New York. <laughs> All right, very good. Israel Meidad is the Educational and Informational Resources Director here at the Menachem Begin Heritage Center. you got to come and visit this place. It's an amazing uh, educational institution, and it's got so much going on. I've been to many great conferences here. Uh, you have many books coming up. Uh, coming out all the time about the history of the underground movements and how the, the pre-state movements um, morphed into the state movements. Uh, Yisrael Meidad, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on, Yisrael. And you have a great radio voice, and that's because we make great radio here on the Land of Israel Network, landofisrael.com. My name is Yisrael Fleischer. This is the Yisrael Fleischer Show. Connect to me on Twitter, on Facebook, and all the other ways. Write me an email, Yisrael at thelandofisrael.com. Folks, this is an amazing land. And we're reading about it in the Torah portions. We're reading about the ancient cities. And we're coming back as God promised us. Stay tuned. Stay strong. Stay connected. And Shalom. Hey, folks, this is Jeremy Gimpel. I want you to know if you're a non-Jew from a Christian background or just a full-fledged Christian and you want to come to Israel, the best program tour experience that you could possibly have is to go with Hayovel. Now it's weird, I'm an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and I'm telling Christians to go to this Christian ministry in the middle of Samaria. Let me tell you, there is no better experience for someone outside of the land, outside of the Jewish fold, to come into the land and work alongside the Jewish farmers of Samaria to learn about the culture, to meet the people. It's an experience like no other, and I think it's also probably the cheapest way to travel to Israel. So go to Hayovel.com.